Makes you wonder about that. Hey? Huh. But it is a command to bless God after we eat, lest we forget him after we grow satisfied. So this blessing after meals, we're going to do the full thing here as we've done from time to time. But we are going to do it in uh, page 13. Page 13. And uh, we have an extra one for this uh, fine gentleman. I didn't realize we were doing the whole We're going to do the whole thing, yeah. Um, and we're going to do it in English because my friend Mike is here and his Hebrew is crummy. Trust me, I've checked. It's crummy. So the, the little corner stuff in the top right corner is what we say on Shabbat rather than what we say uh, around it on the, uh, during the days of the week. So together with me in the little box... A song of ascents, when Adonai will return the captivity of Zion. We will be like dreamers, and then our mouth will be filled with laughter, and our tongue with glad song. Then we will declare among the nations, Adonai has done greatly with these, Adonai has done greatly with us. We were gladdened. O Adonai, return our captivity like springs in the desert. Those who tearfully sow will reap in glad song. He who bears the measure of seeds walks along weeping, but will return in exaltation, a bearer of seeds. When will that happen? When Messiah Yeshua returns to Zion, to Jerusalem, and we have the reign of Messiah, finally. The uh, paragraph beginning with, May my mouth declare. Together with me. May my mouth declare the praise of Adonai, and may all flesh bless his holy name forever. We will bless God from this time and forever. Hallelujah. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good. His kindness endures forever. Who can express the mighty acts of Adonai? Who can declare all his praise? Behold, I am prepared and ready to perform the positive commandment of Birkat on his own. For it is said, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai, your God, for the good land which he gave you. Now notice the little instruction where there's three or more people, and there are... The leader, that would be me, says, Gentlemen, let us bless. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. With the permission of the distinguished people present, let us bless our God, he of whose we have eaten. Blessed is our God, he of whose we have eaten and through whose goodness we live. Blessed is our God, he of whose we have eaten and through his goodness we live. Blessed is he and blessed is his name. And we continue at the bottom of the page. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who nourishes the entire world in his goodness, with grace, with kindness, and with mercy. He gives nourishment to all flesh, for his kindness is eternal. And through his great goodness we have never lacked, and may we never lack nourishment for all eternity. For the sake of his great name, because he is God, who nourishes and sustains all and benefits all, and he prepares food for all of his creatures that he has created. As it is said, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed are you, Adonai, who nourishes all. Outstanding. We continue. We thank you, Adonai, our God, because you have given to our forefathers as a heritage a desirable, good, and spacious land. Because you removed us, Adonai, our God, from the land of Egypt, and you redeemed us from the house of bondage, which we'll learn about today. For your covenant that you sealed in our flesh, for your Torah that you taught us, and for your statutes that you made known to us, for life, grace, and loving kindness that you granted us, and for the provision of food with which you nourish and sustain us constantly, in every day, in every season, and in every hour. Flip the page. You just got to take a breath so you can swallow. Yeah, top of the page together. 
For all that I your God, we thank you and bless you. May your name be praised by the mouth of all the living continuously for all eternity. As it is written, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai your God for the good land that he gives you. Blessed are you, Adonai, for the land and for the nourishment. Amen. Joshua, what, what's the reference where we should bless God after we eat? Thank you, Joshua. Well done. And the second paragraph. I tell you, you know, what can you do? Her Hebrews crummy too. Together with me. Have mercy, we beg you, and I your God, on Israel, even your people, on Jerusalem, your city, on Zion, the resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed, and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called. Our God, our Father, tend us, nourish us, sustain us, support us, relieve us, and I our God, grant us speedy relief from all our troubles. Please make us not needful, and I our God, of the gifts of human hands, nor of their loans but only of your hand that is full, open, holy, and generous, that we may not feel inner shame nor be humiliated forever and ever. Outstanding. In the pink box, the first one, on the Sabbath, together with me, may it please you, Adonai, our God, give us rest through your commandments and through the commandments of the seventh day, this great and holy Sabbath. For this day is great and holy before you, to rest on it and be content on it in love, as ordained by your will. May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that there be no distress, grief, or lament on this day of our contentment. And show us, Adonai, our God, the consolation of Zion, your city, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the city of your holiness. For you are the master of salvations and master of consolations. How would he show us the consolation of Zion? It's not a trick question. How would he show us the consolation of Zion? By coming back, yes. All right, down the bottom of the page, please, in white, together with me. Rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city, soon in our days. Blessed are you, Adonai, who rebuilt Jerusalem in his mercy. Amen. And we turn the page, almost done, together with me. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, the Almighty, our Father, our King, our Sovereign, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Israel, the King who is good and who does good for all. For every single day He did good, He does good, and He will do good for us. He was bountiful with us, He is bountiful with us, and He will forever be bountiful with us. With grace and with kindness and with mercy, with relief, salvation, success, blessing, help, consolation, sustenance, support, mercy, life, peace, and all good, and of all good things may He never deprive us. Now, wow, that's a great <clears throat> prayer. I think we just pray for everything that could possibly happen that's good. And we know that God is the one that can do it. Let's see. I don't think you've done this yet for us, Barcelai, Ben Avraham. I want you to sound off with the compassionate one, with gusto, with a pair of lungs. And bring it out there for us every time you see it. Would you like the compassionate one? No, I want the compassionate one. And then we'll fill in. In English. All right. The compassionate one! <laughs> May he reign over us forever! The compassionate one! May he be blessed in heaven and on earth! The compassionate one! May he be blessed throughout all generations! May he be glorified through us forever to the ultimate end! And be honored through us forever and for all eternity! The compassionate one! May he sustain us in honor! The compassionate one! May he break the yoke of oppression from our necks and guide us back to our land! 
compassionate one. May you send us abundant blessings in this house and upon this table in which we have Passionate one. May he send us a light to the prophet that he is remembered for good to proclaim to us good tidings, salvations, and consolations. May it be God's will that this host not be shamed or humiliated in this world or in the world to come. May he be successful in all his dealings. May his dealings be successful and conveniently close at hand. May no evil impediment reign over his handiwork, and may no semblance of sin or iniquitous thought attach itself to him from this time and forever. I would be very happy if you would pray that every time you come into my house. What a wonderful prayer. Outstanding. Isn't it, Fred? You're on. Continue. The compassionate one. Be the compassionate one. May he bless me, my wife, and my children, and all that is mine. Ours is all that is ours, just as our forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were blessed in everything, from everything, with everything. So may he bless us all together with the perfect blessing, and let us say, Amen. Like that page. The top of the next page. On high may merit be pleased upon them and upon us for the safeguard of peace. May we receive a blessing from Adonai and just kindness from the God of our salvation and find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. It's not a Brit Milah. On the Sabbath, add. The compassionate one. May he cause us to inherit the day that will be completely a Sabbath and a rest day for eternal life. Okay. So it's, it's interesting that you need to look to see what you say, but you know what to say. So say it now in the white. The compassionate one. May he make us worthy of the days of Messiah and Shiloh and the life of the world to come. He was a tower of salvation to his king and does kindness for his anointed to David and to his descendants forever. He who makes peace in his heights, he may make peace upon us and upon all Israel. Now respond, Amen. Last paragraph. Fear not, you his holy ones, for there is no deprivation for his reverent ones. Young lions may want and hunger, but those who seek Adonai will not lack any good. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good. His kindness endures forever. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai, and Adonai will be his security. I was a youth and also a aged, and I have not seen a righteous man forsaken, with his children begging for bread. And I will give might to his people, and I will bless his people with peace. Amen. Will the young men gather up these books, please? Joseph, while they're doing that, yes, just to remind everybody uh, that a passing of Ariel Sharon, uh, Arik was a great man, and his memory be for blessing. Amen. He was a former Prime Minister of Israel. He was in Israeli politics for a very long time. He was an important um, leader of the Israeli military. 60, 73 and 67, he was a hero. What? Can I give you that? Just, 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 just. Only eight of those go in the box, and we don't bend any of the pages or you buy it. No pressure. You can pay for me tomorrow. <laughs> Today is Shabbat Shirah, the Sabbath of song, because we're going to be reading the Song of Moses. Tuba Shavat is the 15th of uh, Shavat, and that is this Thursday, and it's the new year for? Trees. Trees. How many new years do we have? Four at least. Right. 
I don't know if Tom Brown, my good friend from Myrtle Beach, and his wife Trish are watching right now, but if they are, a big shout out to Tom. Hey, Tom. Hi, Tom. Tom. Thomas. They have a uh, newlywed couple in their community, uh, Clinton and Sharon. Yeah, well, they are newlyweds, and their first child, Samuel, was born, stillborn yesterday. So let's keep them in our prayers. Clinton and Sharon. Michaela and Grace, of course, are in Jerusalem. We pray that they are not only safe, but enjoying and enduring the burden of being in the land of Israel among God's people. It is. Somebody's got to do it, though, right? It is good to have back Mr. Upham, who actually had to pay to leave the land. Unbelievable. There it is. But we are glad he's back. May we always have to pay to leave. That's right. May it be a burden to leave. Burden me with this. The right family is spread here and amongst and traveling. Joe Gordon, is uh, his nephew just passed, and uh, he's been working extraordinarily hard. And then uh, Rebecca, of course, is on a cruise, so we, uh, we won't be praying for her. Um, <laughs> Wayne is in Florida. And, of course, Jeremiah and Caitlin. Caitlin is, where's Caitlin? Caitlin is setting home. Jeremiah and Caitlin are packing tomorrow. I hope you got the uh, announcement. And especially if you're strong and virile, mm-hmm. you can go over to uh, Rick and Janet's and help them move the, I think, no more than three pianos. and uh, <laughs> 3 p.m. tomorrow. That's 3 p.m. tomorrow. And after that, over to the uh, uh, Fletcher's house to get the other bedroom suits, and they'll be driving to Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma for pilot training this week. They'll actually have their own apartment. Praise God. Praise God. Um, How many of you want to fly out to Oklahoma and help move the piano a second time? (laughs) (laughs) Only one or two. Okay. Oklahoma's like my home too. Okay. So the uh, the name of this uh, of this portion is Bushalak. What does that mean? He sent them out. Yes, and. This is the 16th Torah portion of the year. And we pick up, I think, in what, 14? 13, 17. 13, what's it? 17. Page 367, if you've got a chomash like mine. So, um, in a nutshell, again, if we could, real quick, what's this portion about? Pharaoh sends him out. Pharaoh sends him out. Bushel, he sends him out. Exodus. It's the Exodus. Nice. That was good. That's it right here. The Exodus from Mitzrayim. Good. All right. What else? What 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 kind of famous stories? It's about redemption. It's about the redemption, and this this redemption where God actually reaches in and does the redemptive work Himself is exactly the picture of Messiah Yeshua. The display of God's love and power for For his children, absolutely. Love and power for the children of Israel. For those of you on the tape, I'll let him one by. Okay, what else? Famous stories. The splitting of the Red Sea. I think Charlton Heston, do you? Probably not. Okay. (laughs) That's good. 
Security We're going to talk about that specifically and in great detail when we get to it in just Charlton a moment. Heston? I beg your pardon? Charlton Heston? Charlton Heston. Well, we could talk about Charlton Heston, too. I mean, we could do the Planet of the Apes thing, and, you know, or the NRA thing, you know, take this rifle out of my dead cold hands or something like that. Um, but we'll, we'll work on the Exodus story. Um, when we have the splitting of the Red Sea, there's some other part to that story that is repeated every week. It's not just the parting. The well, singing. The song. the song. Okay, we got the song. Between those two, I'm thinking rickety wheels. Come on, help me. And the Egyptians washed up dead. Pharaoh's chariots. The Egyptians washed up dead on the seashore. He not only brought his children across safely, but he also destroyed their enemies. Amen. And then the song at the sea. Exactly right. All righty. They took up Joseph's bones. His trees. I beg your pardon? I'm like a tag. I'm like a tag, right at the end. We're going we're gonna to finish with that one. Exactly right. And oh, yeah. and, oh, who said that? Incredibly. We did have the manna. That's exactly right. And what's better than manna? Quail. Yeah, unless it's coming out your nose. It seems like there's a lot of promises here. It kicks off with bringing out the bones of Joseph, which was a, a promise, promise that they made. That yep. is now fulfilled. Good. God said he would bring Excellent. them out of the land. He did. Another he promise fulfilled. Good, good. Rescue he said, them from their foes. He said they would go down, and he would bring them up, yeah. and he did. Oh, yeah. yep. Good, good. Got any more off the top of your head? Bring them up as he comes. Okay. okay. So just picking up on the whole bones of Joseph. Yeah. So... Uh, there was the promise, you know, Yosef made that promise, look, God is going to bring you out of the land of Egypt, and when he does, you better take me with him, right? So, uh, there's a Midrash in Exodus Ravage that talks about, while the children of Israel are busy gathering gold and silver from the Egyptians, Moshe goes and gathers the bones of Yosef as they get ready to leave. Oh, how cool is that? Okay. And, so this, this Midrash says uh, that as they left uh, as as they left Egypt and then later once they get to Sinai and they're wandering in the wilderness for four years, they're they're carrying two uh, chests, two arcs. The question is, what are the two arcs? Well, one arc is the ark of the covenant where the divine presence you know rests, and the other arc is carrying the bones of the deceased Zadi Yosef. Mm. So the Midrash says, asks, well, is it appropriate? And, and, and they're, 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 they're traveling side by side. So the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of Yosef are traveling side by side. And the Midrash asks, is it appropriate that the Ark with dead bones would be traveling in such close proximity and in you know, parallel with the Ark of the Covenant? And the response in the Midrash is that, well, the contents of this ark, referring to the ark of Yosef, fulfilled all the contents of. Oh, that's okay. cool. So what's yeah? So the interesting thing there is, of course, we know that Yosef is a type of Messiah. Absolutely. And <clears throat> what the midrash is saying is that Yosef was a complete zadik, and he kept all of the Torah, you know, all of the commandments, as it were. And so they then say that because the contents of the ark containing Joseph's bones kept all the contents of the ark of God, the ark of the testimony, that um, 
they connect this to the fact that even though there's death in this arc, that there will ultimately be life. And so it kind of connects to the resurrection. Now what's interesting is, so picture this, so during that, you know, so we're talking about the day of Passover or maybe the next day, right? They're leaving and now the tomb of Yosef is vacant, empty. And the empty tomb of Yosef is exhibit A, that God has kept his promise. Oh, you mean the tomb in Egypt? In Egypt. Ah, the tomb of that's Egypt, good. It's a palace. The tomb in Egypt of where Yosef was laid to rest, waiting to be taken out, yeah. is now empty. During pa I mean, during that Passover, right? That first Passover. This will bring fourteen hundred years later. We have Messiah Ben Yosef, who is both figuratively, figuratively Ben Yosef and literally Ben Yosef, who is laid to rest in a tomb who coincidentally is owned by a man named Yosef. <laughs> and during the same week, that tomb is also vacated. Yosef's tomb is empty. Wow. Which is evidence of the promise of the redemption. Very cool. <laughs> That doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck go up or, or bless your blesser, your blesser's blessing. <laughs> My husband shared something with me last night about Joseph's bones and Passover and that you want to tell him also to mess it up? He likes it better when you do it. <laughs> well, the fact that the first men who asked for Passover to be redone, yes. the Midrash says they were burning Joseph's bones. And then we have those same men who put them in the tomb very having cool. to redo the parallel. How cool is that? And who who really thought that the name Joseph would be so well revered? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, good. it's a good name. It's a good name. It's a good name. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, yeah. Well, it, it comes from the sages of Israel, who are normally tossed before even looking at what they say, and we assume that they're not saved. The rabbis, the big props, the rabbis. His bones, because we know he was embalmed, and this wasn't like that long. I mean, two hundred years is nothing compared to how long the embalming process preserves the body. That's true. But yet, scripture references it as bones, almost bones. to emphasize, like, we're not about the whole body thing. We're waiting for the resurrection. Yeah. This is just well, bones now. Well, you brought up a good point, Greg, because uh, I was going to ask, why was it so important? Now, in light of what Greg said, ignore what he just said. That was, that's the answer. But I was going to ask, why was Joseph so adamant about having his bones brought up out of Egypt? I mean, if, if the resurrection is going to occur, if Messiah Yeshua is, is going to return, and the dead in Messiah will rise first, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, 2 Thessalonians, who cares where you are? Suppose well, you're lost at sea. Wouldn't his burial place have been decimated after who cares? they left? But who cares? Well, I'm just wondering, who cares? If the guy's dead, who cares? But they did care about the bones of the aged. You know, the 
Yes. Abraham. Yes. But Joseph actually makes their order himself. And I think the reason is because Joseph sees, um, he, is, uh, he believes the promises of God. To him, he wants to be associated with the promises of God, even if he's dead. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that's actually that's the key. The end of Genesis ends with Joseph telling the, the his brothers and his and their children, God will remember you. He will take you up. When he does, take me with you. It's almost like Joseph himself is putting like a um, a guarantee on God's promise to prove that God is going to do this. He's going to take me with you. It's it's like I mean it's really kind of a cool concept. Um, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with you. He, he's also following the footsteps of his father, right. because right. Jacob yeah. also died in, right. in Egypt, but he made they it clear. escorted him back. Yeah. Don't to, bury me here. Back to the land and buried him in the cave of Machpelah. So you know, he's kind of also following that. I don't think it was that he wanted to die in the land. He wanted to be a part of the problem. I don't think it was any of that. Because I think he would get that regardless. I think he got a clue. Moses hits the, hits the rock the second time. Big mistake. Why? You blew the whole parallel I was building. You messed it up. You messed up the parallel. I think he got a clue. That there would be a parallel. And there needed to be an empty tomb. I could be wrong. But it just seems a guy who has visions... All the time, maybe knew something was going to happen. And I think it's also kind of a cool um, Hebrewism going on here. And if someone knows Hebrew any better than I do, can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think the word etsem, which is the word for bones, in this passage, is also related also to like the concept of like the the inner person or like the like the essence. Ooh, just kind of cool. Like the essence of Joseph goes with them. goes with them. I like that. I like that. And since he was a type of Messiah, how cool is that? Since another picture, here's the rock. But again, I, I think that the importance of Joseph making that promise is really huge because he gives like my dad likes to say he gives the code words. God will remember you. So when Moses comes to the children of Israel a couple hundred years later and says, God has heard your cry, he has remembered, remembered you. He, he gives the code words. So, and that's exactly what we get here. Again, it reiterates that Joseph said, he had firmly adjured them, God will surely remember you. And I think that that is, I think that again, the righteous look ahead. You know, the righteous are not simply saying what they, they're not just doing what they do for themselves or even for the generation that they're in. They are thinking multiple generations down the road. Amen. Good what job. can I do to impact people that I will never see? Exactly. Wow. Don't you wish we all lived like that moment by moment? All right. So this it's a long portion, and we can't do everything. So I'm going to jump ahead. If you want to come back, we can come back. I don't get it. I need your help. It sounds to me like God deliberately turned them around and put them literally between a king and a wet spot. <laughs> Finish the, the question. So, is that the case? And if it's true, can you give me the scriptural reference as to why? I mean, it sounds like he deliberately put them, quote unquote, in harm's way. Mm-hmm. Why would he do that? Well, because and in the verse. Be, and I will be glorified through Papa and his entire army. There it is. Okay. And I think you're on the first page, right? I'm on uh, chapter 14, uh, verse uh, 4. First page. There it is. 
Is that page two? Three sixty-nine. Yes. Second. Uh, one sixty-nine. Whoa, whoa! The green one. He's got the green book. Okay. All right. So yeah. There it is. So that's the that's the reason. So right. a deeper spiritual truth. I was talking to Ryan about this mm -hmm. because you think about it. Um, verse of uh, chapter fourteen, verse twenty-two, the uh, twenty-one. Sorry. Um, 21 is on the second page. That the children of Israel came within the uh, let's see on the dry land. I'm sorry. Um, uh, Third page. 30. On that day, uh, Hashem saved Israel from the hand of Egypt, and Israel saw the Egyptians, the Egyptians dead on the, on, the, on the seashore. Why is it that day? If you think about it, God really saved them already from the Exodus. They've already come out of a nation. Granted, they're being pursued, obviously, but. Why is this their salvation? And for as a, as a as a collective, they've already come out. I mean, if anything, if if they saw all the ten plagues and all the things that all the miracles God did before, why is this one called the actual salvation of the nation? And and this is not the first day. Exactly. It's, so this is not Passover. This is right. not fifteen. So so that's that's the question. Why is why is this more significant when it comes to corporate salvation for the people? I think a possible explanation uh, is when uh, I was talking to Ryan about. Um, uh, he, he does counseling for people with substance abuse and uh, addictions. People that need an exit. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you look at it, and one thing I was talking about is a relapse for someone who's coming mm -hmm. out of uh, a withdrawal is probably the most important thing for their future sobriety. And you look at it, if, if, if a person, or in this case a nation, has tasted uh, sobriety for a period of time, they're no, no longer in bondage to the addiction or the bondage to Egypt, and then they're faced with uh, with a, with a, a, a temptation and in, in, in a moment of weakness, they fall. Um, that how they conduct themselves is significantly important to where they're going to go. They're going to feel scared. They're going to feel I, I I thought I had this. I thought I was a good person. I thought I I thought God had saved me. Now look at now I have Pharaoh on my back. Yeah. Now these guys are coming right back after me. Yeah. But it's until it's almost like the the concept of of, uh, of uh, shuva of, of repentance doesn't count until you you have the same opportunity to to. To perform the same thing, and you don't. And you don't. So here they have the same opportunity to 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 be mentally um, uh, dis defeated and lose their faith and their trust in God, whom they, whom He's already displayed His power. Um, and it's here that the second opportunity comes for a corporate failure, where God uses Moses, and that's where the true salvation comes because it's more significant for the, the second time. Around. It kind of solidifies. It. Right. I'm uh, I'm reminded of when I taught my girls to ride a bicycle. I really can't remember teaching Peter to ride a bicycle. It's also natural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is always taller than a bike, so yeah. Um, but when I, when I taught them to ride a bike, you know, I mean, you guys have done this, right? I mean, you're, you're holding the back of the seat, and you're trotting along, and, you, and what are you shouting? Paddle! 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 You know, and then finally, they're, they're pedaling, and they're starting to pull away from you, right? And then what happens? That front wheel goes a little wobbly. And you're right there, because you're still running next to them, and you ride that bike. And when they feel that wobbliness straight now, it's the same thing. They get that confidence that, yeah, I can pedal through this. I can pedal through this, mm -hmm. and I can do it. I like it. It's, I, I think that's uh, that's got some great credibility. I think what's also really cool in this passage is it specifically says that God did not take them by the way of the Philistines because the war would potentially scare them off and they would want to go back to Egypt. And then the immediate next passage, or one of the very shortly thereafter passages, is it talks about the fact that 
God intentionally leads them in a little circle right. to entice the Egyptians after them. Right. And We're going to bring some war on, baby. Here we go. So I think that the, the, the really powerful element of that is I, I see so much of that in our own lives. I think that people like the, like the children of Israel oftentimes look at it and they go, God led me into this. I can't believe God let this happen. But we don't realize is that God intentionally did that because he knows we can handle that. Amen. He didn't take us along the way of the Philistines because you know we can't handle that good. so God always gives us the trials that we're capable of taking care of and they're ultimately for our good Amen. The, the picture there is they were heading um, head first as it were into the Philistines but in this case Pharaoh is pursuing them from behind so it's almost like it's almost like they weren't able to face head on the Philistines that would have been too overwhelming for them but the pursuit by Pharaoh ultimately was something that, um, that that they would overcome with God's help, obviously. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I, I mean, to answer the question before, that was all really good, but I thought of First Corinthians 10, what Paul mentions about, it says, uh, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our father, all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then, of course, strength, fame, spiritual drink, the rock, which was Yeshua. But I think that was also an important part of needing to go through the sea and creating the need to go through the sea by sending Pharaoh's army. I agree. They they had to see God do it. I mean, it's it's one thing to walk out on your own steam, even with a whole bunch more money than you walked in with. It's quite another to realize can't go that way or that way you can't go that way and and the only thing that can help you is God which is exactly what Moses tells them mm-hmm. and I find the interaction between Moses and God odd it's almost like they stopped and they weren't supposed to stop and he's like why are you standing still let's go let's go you know and I can just almost see Moses you know looking down at the water and going does he want me to go? Joshua, where does he want me to go? You know. But Nakshon stepped in the place. Step up. Bam. But that was late. So it doesn't happen like it happens in the movie, does it? How does it happen in the movie? Charlton Heston sticks up, stand back, stand by, and see the power of, in our version it says man, because we have the TV Guardian on Stand by and see the power of man, because it replaces man with God, to, so it doesn't take the name. Uh, which always sounded weird, but uh, so. Does it took all night. I'm sorry. Does it took all night? It took all night, but in the movie, you know, he puts his arms up with a stick, and a moment later, and we got dry land. But it took all night. Well, that would be an ant- very anticlimactic for a movie. I mean, like, you would. Twelve hours later. Stand, stand by and see the hand of God. In the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Keep standing by. Yeah. It was cool because the sages say that the cloud stood between them, so yeah. it was dark for the Egyptians, but it was still light for Israel. And as, warm. And warm, yeah. Yeah. Good. But, but the, the passing through the Red Sea, I mean, it's just like um, the verse in Corinthians, you know, it was a mikvah of, of sorts, right? I mean, sure. they were as good as dead. So... They were as good as dead, except that Hashem intervened, and so there's a there's a transformation 
they, when they go into the sea and come up on the other side, there's a change of status, well, which is I'm, what the purpose of the mikvah is. That Jonathan said. Yeah. That was the day of redemption. They right. went into the water and came out redeemed. Right. No question. And, and this passage, the, the splitting of the sea, um, is really significant. Judah mentioned this is the love and power of God. And the, the sages' commentary, and then also I've heard Rabbi Gampel talk about this as well, that the, um, the split is really important because it wasn't just that God saved them. Because they'd seen God save them before. It was that God used the very method he used to save them as also as judgment on their enemies. Mm-hmm. And basically what this uh, Rabbi Gampel was saying is that the splitting of the Red Sea was the ultimate display of God's justice. He was perfectly just. He saved his people, he redeemed them, and then in the same moment, he not only obliterated their enemies, but he, according to tradition, he measured it out, he gave it out measure for measure. So like a guy who'd beaten the Israel, Israelite and broken his arm, he got his arm broken in the, in the crashing waves, and you know, that kind of thing. So that the people of Israel got a revelation of God's justice that no one gets to see. So you know how we have questions today, like why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? That kind of thing. The people of Israel saw that end times picture, that idea that God is fully just and everything will be measured out the way it's supposed to be. And I think that that is part of what's significant here because at the end of the story, it says the people feared Adonai and they had faith in Adonai and in Moses' servant. It's like it changed their, their entire perspective. They All of a sudden it's like, wow, I have seen God for who he really is. Amen. Mike? I was just trashing. Okay. No so the, I think the, the sages kind of touched a little bit on like the, the faith at the end there, how it wasn't like they didn't have any faith to start with, but that it was strengthened at the end. And I actually wrote down, because this was so good, what Tim Haig had a comment in regard to that specifically. And it, so it, he said, um, the purpose of God's miracles which are with us every day, is to strengthen our faith in him. Apart from the exercise of faith, the ultimate purpose of miracles is short-circuited. So this is the meaning of Matthew 13, 58, where it says, And he, Yeshua, did not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Mm. So they already had like this mm. faith, but then it was this huge demonstration of miracles that strengthened it all the more. Amen. Picking up on that verse, the fact that they... That they feared Hashem, they had faith in Hashem and in Moshe. And again, because Moses is a type of the Messiah, mm-hmm. there's also kind of an, an illusion here that's very important that um, two entities that faith in Messiah is also equally important. So yeah. 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 Well, yeah, it's me, it's, it, I mean, just, I mean, the trust, but they obeyed. They did what he told them to do. Um, they they did leave, or maybe some of them didn't, I don't know. But those that left were redeemed. They were saved, you know. So it's not enough to see his hand doing great things, but that we do have to. Act upon Uh-huh. When he tells us to do what seems stupid to other people or ridiculous to ourselves at times, you know, just to do it anyway and watch his hand in our own personal life. You know, I know y'all experience it too. It's like, oh my gosh, how could I doubt him? But we do. I mean, later, I mean, we we question, you know, whether he's really, not really there. We know he's there, but just like, 
you feel like he's not there exactly. sometimes. Exactly. Good. So these, uh, again, I don't, I don't think the movie was right. What actually happened? The people went through on... It was dry land. That's important. Not muddy, dry. And then, what happened? He gave the sea back its power. Cool, very nice. Yeah. When did he do that? Where were the Egyptians? In the middle of the sea. Did he turn back? Careful, it's a trick question. Did he did he turn back the sea to its normal place in order to save his people? Um. Yes, and also no. So, so is it trick answer? Okay. Yes. In theory, he had to wipe them out. Why do you say no? Well, because if they, if the Egyptians had caught caught up with them, they would have had some trouble already with the chariots and all that stuff. Okay. So their chariots and their horse, their horses would have just broken off. Their horses and just ran away, or they had to go and catch them on foot. Okay, I, I'm with you. It could have been, uh, it could have been a, a military problematic battle. I got that part. That's not what I'm looking for. Yes. Okay. They hadn't seen the power of God. How is it that they saw the power of God on the Egyptians? When did he take them out? Did he take them out when, like, a chariot guy is reaching out and is going to grab the, the last little Israelite guy running down through the through the dry land? Is that how it happened? Peter, what happened? Well, I think the scripture says that the Israelites got on the other side and watched the show. I'm trying to figure out about the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians... Ergo, we're <coughs> mid sea. Okay, I'm still waiting. He doesn't have it either. There was the, the whole, the whole uh, spokes and the. Got that part. Got that <laughs> part. Well, they panicked and they actually ended up getting into panic. the sea as it's falling onto them. Okay. Well, I think the sages say that literally, like, spit out all the Egyptian. I'm willing to say that's true too. What was the question here? The question is. <laughs> it's a trick question. It is a yeah. trick question, but evidently it's too tricky. Nobody got it. Let me just give it to you. What? Why don't you just ask it one more time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 Gave the power back to the sea. That was so good. Okay. So. So. Did he bring the sea back in order to save his people? Yes. I would say no. Why do I say no and you say yes? We don't care why you say I yes right now. No. You would say no? Why would you say no? Because the winds were blowing this way. Yes. That's so good. He had to change the winds back. And he brought it back. I got that part. But did he bring the sea back on top of the Egyptians in order to save the Israelites? This is a part that well, we never hear in church. His, I think it's for his glory. It is for his glory. Okay, so why is it not to save you? Is it because it was judgment? It was judgment. How do you know? Absolutely. How do you know? Well, they threw the Israelites into the water, the babies, and this was definitely a measure. Uh, that response. was the Nile. That was already taken care of. I think. I think. 
Folks, the scripture is clear. The Egyptians were no longer chasing after the Israelites. They had already turned around. He did not have to bring that water back on top of them in order to save his people. The scripture says they had already turned around and they gave up. And then the water came in and wiped them out. It's apocryphal. It's right there in the scripture. Find the right. Well, it does say the Egyptians were fleeing toward it. Toward it. Fleeing. Fleeing. Fleeing toward it. The next verse says they were coming behind them, behind the Israelites. I think the scripture is clear. No matter how you look at it, whatever weird versions we all have, they're they're as just Jonathan said. Their spokes and wheels were all mangled and messed up. There was judgment upon the. Egyptians, it wasn't just, oh my goodness, I better bring the water back in now, or the little guy on the end of that line might get hit. What's interesting is we know from the text that, and and Chazal talked a lot about this, that that the Israelites walked across on dry Dry land. Right, so the the seabed was not wet and mushy and muddy and whatever, it was dry. So if it was dry, why would the chariot wheels have problems? Right. Unless it wasn't dry for the for the Egyptians. Or they knew God was messing with the wheels. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so absolutely. So it, lo- it would appear that uh, Dad is correct. No. Yeah. No. Based I know it's hard for you to say that, son. I know I it's hard. I say it's possibly every year once. So and so here is what it says: is that they pursued them into the midst of the sea. Yes, they did. And then there was some wheel trouble, and the Egyptians <laughs> said, "Hubcap droppage. Let's flee from before Israel. Yes. AKA, let's leave this." They place fled before Israel. Exactly right. Based so. strictly on the wheel trouble. Yeah. And then. The Lord said to Moses, "Stretch out your hand and bring the water, bring back. the waters back." Now that they're fleeing, because exactly. we got to kill all exactly because Gabby was right. These people needed to be judged. It wasn't a retribution or last-minute salvation thing. Oh my goodness! I guess I should have had him start across the water a little sooner. It looks like Jeb there at the end is going to have a little trouble. I ought to bring the water back in sooner. It wasn't like that. They gave up. But he had to demonstrate his power, and he had to judge them. And folks, he swamped those Egyptians after they had already given up fighting against the people of God. I tell you what, you don't hear that in the church. This is a judgmental God, not to be juxtaposed with the gracious God in the New Testament. Actually, we've got judgment versus grace right here. Exactly right. Exactly right. We say God uses his anointed to bring judgment on God's enemies. Oftentimes. And his anointed does not hold back judgment on God's enemies. That's it. Okay. Uh, there's, there's another kind of picture of that. that uh, I think it was, again, Tim Hegg that pointed out that the, in the, I think the sages say that there was a bit of an overlap whenever the fire would lead them and then the smoke would lead them in the day. So, like, basically right you know around dawn and then right at twilight that was when there was a bit of an overlap where the fire and smoke would be present at the same time okay and which was interesting because that's also the time when in the morning it was right at that point yes. that the manna would arrive okay when 
apparently the presence of God was kind of overlapping in a sense, uh-huh. which is really interesting. And then it also talks about when the quail comes, that's at twilight. Yeah. The next time that it happens, yeah. that yeah. it, it yeah. kind of So you're not saying that God's changing? Smoked quail. No, no, it's just his, the manifestation of his presence in that case is, 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 is switching. Yeah. In flux. And, I just and this there's those temporary points where they're, it's like, I guess you could say twice as strong because both of the Both of his expressions are there at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Well, mm. and the bread of life, aka the Trinity, was present. Oh, Jesus! Mm. All right, <laughs> Joshua, you had something. Yes. Yeah. The Egyptians must have been on the horizon, not there yet. When? When Moshe actually started opening the sea and leading them in. Why do you say that? Because if this, if we're talking a sea. Yes. Pretty wide. Pretty deep. And they're like almost all the way at the other end. Yeah. The Egyptians have to come in and go about halfway and then turn around. Yeah. Well, then they must have been in there for a while longer as the Egyptians just arrived and started quote, going in. Do you suppose that the movie had it right that the pillar of fire was kind of holding them back to get started until the people could get across a little ways? I like that one better. Charleston Heston's in that movie. It's pretty cool. <laughs> have you seen that? Well, I think I think that is probably more realistic too because um, it says that the one that the fire held them back uh-huh. or the cloud. Because, well, it says that, right? Yeah, it says that they didn't go near one another all night. Right. So that indicates proximity. Yeah. I think yeah. you know if they're far away, of course they didn't go near them. They couldn't reach them. Yeah. But if they're right there, then it would make sense why God would have to hold them back. Yeah, I think you're right that they were on the horizon at one point, and they turn around and go, "Holy cow!" Well, they probably didn't say that. They probably went, oy vey, there's the Egyptians, hey, right? You know, and they start to run faster, and and then they well they bump into the water because there was a guy in the mouth. No, no, that's not. I don't know that they were super close like in the movie though. That really? seemed really unrealistic. You know, they couldn't they come. They couldn't come any closer. Right, they didn't approach one another. Uh-huh. Why is that? Because they were held back by the fire as well. You don't suppose that the singular presence of God is was in two or three different places at that time? It's just no. one place, right? Yes, just so one place. Oh, it's, it's what you say. A tall deal. Was well, it? in the movie, they had to really stretch it because they had like one point of entry. Yeah. Toward the Israelites, and there was the pillar of fire. Right, right. And there was Pharaoh right behind the pillar. Absolutely. Of fire. And all the people getting a tan, like on this rock, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't think it was that way? Very unrealistic, I think. I think. Well, so you think they lined like, up? Like so the whole, the whole community, six million people, just went stretched along the. No, the, the, I say there's nowhere like down the Red Sea, though. I mean, What's that? I mean, the, the Red Sea is a very rocky, a very. It's, it's, it's not beaches like we think of here in America, though. I don't think it was a beach. I don't know. I just I feel like <laughs> armies, you know, armies approaching, and yeah. then, so God stops them. Yes, but. I don't think there was like one chariot in front, and, and everybody just right on the other side, side, basically. Yeah, of, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, so you don't think those little fire darts came out to stop the guys from you know end running the, the pillar of fire? Yeah, I don't think they were actively. Um, Can you express why, <laughs> in your mind, well, the Egyptians chose not to draw near to the? I mean, were they into the wind or into the wind? It was, a, it was a strong wind all night, right? Mm-hmm. Why didn't they attack them at night? I mean, I'm just looking. Right, no, so God is in the way. God is in the way. 
God is, God is the way. Being. <laughs> what is it? I was just looking for what it said. Right, so the angel of God moved from before the host and yes. behind. To behind. Yeah. And coming in between the host of Israel and the host of Israel. He's between uh, Egypt. Yeah. Cloud and darkness. Wide lit up man. the night. Uh, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Okay. I don't know what that means. Well, it means they didn't come near each other all night long. It's also used for one. What, what are the two ones, though? The two camps. The Egyptian know. camp and the Hebrew camp. Right. Right. They didn't come near one another. Right, because they couldn't. Right, so I don't right. think they were because there was like this other. point of entry, and they just the discussion was what? I don't know. But we brought something up, and I wanted to help. Judah, Judah, Judah's got a really important point. What did you want to say? Well, it could be in the movie that maybe the Egyptians were right there, so we wouldn't have like a like a five-hour movie just because of this. So the water's coming up. So the scripture Wait, was see. modified by Cecil B. DeMille. See, that's I said the other way Clarification point. We keep saying the movie. Which movie? Has I've anybody never, seen, seen the name the of it? And do oh. we all know what we're talking about? The, the movie is The Ten Commandments. Who has not? By Cecil seen B. DeMille and has Charlton Heston. How many? How many people have seen the movie? How many people have not seen? I've not seen the movie. Okay, we're gonna have a showing of that. In this verse, in chapter 14, it says, it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there were a cloud and darkness. That, when it mentions darkness or Hoshek, it reminds me of the ninth plague, yes. where there was a physical, Thick. tangible darkness yes. that kept people from moving. Yeah. And so that's, it, good. that's not completely unrealistic could, at this point. It could be. It could be. Good. All right. Well, a lot of comments. We'll take the lady first, and then we'll come to the younger people, and then you. follow up. Quick follow. That's what he wants. Yes, ma'am. Remember we saw that interesting documentary from Michael Rue that, no, put a lot of credence in it. But he has one about this, and no one has mentioned yet that topical topographical map he showed. But it doesn't matter, right? But isn't that about the water? But it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't really matter. He mentioned that there was a natural land bridge. But it doesn't matter. And I found actual wheels, you know, down below. That's right. That was, yeah, that was, that that was the other guy. Like yeah. yeah. Was well, it Michael Rude or something? Like it, it, yeah. it was Michael Rude, yes. Yeah. So probably. <laughs> 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 Everything was ridiculous. I'm sorry? That doesn't mean it was false. Well, statistically. It <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's presented without any documentation always should be suspect. I am content for it to remain a mystery. There it is, a mystery. Okay, I had you, and then I had, was it you or was it you? Was it you? It was you and you, but you haven't talked yet, right? All right, you're not stretching, right? All right, well, hang on one second. Pre prepare yourself. On a totally different point. All right, then hold on. Yeah, gee whiz. Come on, man. All right, hold on. We've got a quick follow-up. Quick follow-up, Peter. Oh, you, well, just because we were talking about the movie, and the reason that, that I didn't appreciate the movie was what you had already brought up, was that in the movie it only took like a couple of Moments. seconds. Moments, yeah. And that's why the theatrical pillar blocking the one point of entry seems far-fetched is, is so is the only way it works is if it took a short time and since yep. it took all night yes you really can't i mean you really can't go with that 
You can't really go with Ross. Because they would in many places at one time, so I think his pillar could have stretched forever. It could have been a horizontal pillar. Well, if that's your only buff or beef, rather, of historical accuracy with the movie, then you know. Well, yeah, listing the beef. Yeah, I'm with you. If they did it any other way, it would have been a really, really long movie. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you, then you, then you on an entirely different topic. Okay. So, if the movie is correct and all the people are really scared, right? Then I think running for their lives. Right. Then I think the pillar not letting them go between each other is more holding back the Egyptians. Absolutely. Because I don't think Israel wants to go any near or near. Sure. Oh yeah. I think they want to go that way, and they're afraid. But they take solace in the fact that the pillar is holding them back, whether it's a really wide pillar or <laughs> not. Immaterial. Immaterial. Good. Micah. Just said that about the pillow. I just thought of something. It said that it moved. Yes. I was thinking. It, it was leading, it? right? It was leading them, and then it went behind them to stop the Egyptians. Evidently, it got a lot wider when it did that. <laughs> Fat pillar. The movie. The movie showed that it disappeared from in front of them and went behind them and then appeared behind them. So you're not liking the disappear thing, like. Yeah, you'd rather it be only one set of footprints. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Burn in the burn in the track. I don't think the people saw like, like the Egyptians saw the fire part. I think that they all they saw was a cloud. So you're you're leaning with Johnny there that they only saw the cloud. It was a thick darkness and it couldn't move. Rather than the fire was stopping you because it's dark. Didn't want to move because it was dark. Okay. Why would they come out at night without torches? Good question. Was it okay. night? The light of the world. We know that at when night is when out. the wind. Obviously, we should just make our own movie. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know what? I think we should do. Real. Real. Let's, you know, forget the movie. Everybody, read the book. The book is always better. The book is always better. Go ahead, John. An entirely new topic. And thank you for saving us from the depths of the sea. The, 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 um, the sages talk about that the judgment here is not only against the people of Egypt, but also um, is waged against the, the gods of Egypt, as it were. Okay. And um, one of the things they bring up is that, at the, is that, according to Jewish tradition, every nation except Israel has like a guardian angel of sorts. Um, that may sound weird, but if you read the book of Daniel, there's like apparently a prince of Persia and all that jazz. And there also so, seems to be a prince over Rome. Israel. Well, in the case, well, Michael, kind of, your prince. But it does clarify, though, that God says that he is like the intermediate, like the spiritual force, as it were, that provides for Israel. So it might be a, God may have like a, Using someone who helps him out, but basically that uh, he has a point there. But the point is that God is like the direct one with them. Right. Whereas with the nations, it's like for them to have like a spiritual success, as it were, they have, like, God has, like, servants in a sense that kind of, you know, help them out, I guess. Anyway, so the angel of Mitzrayim, supposedly, is also judged at the at their sea and is, like, wiped out here, too. So it's, like, not just a physical victory, but a spiritual one as well. And in the Psalms, it ties into this when it talks about God judging uh, Leviathan at the sea. It's so, like the imagery comes back here is that like this event, the Red Sea, is parallel in a way with the end of time, like we saw today, uh, the Revelation passage that my wife read about the dragon being cast into the into the mm -hmm. pit. Mm -hmm. This is like a picture of God's ultimate judgment. He wipes out the enemies of God in a perfect display of justice, yeah. and he judges the spiritual forces that have been working with them up to that point, and protects his people through all of that mess right. at the same time. Mm -hmm. I like it. 
Well, and the ocean is oftentimes associated with death. death. Yeah. Right. So sure. coming, bringing in through death, as it were, right. about, about well, the shadow of death. But isn't that what Paul says the picture of baptism is? That we were buried with him, buried, dead, right? And we rose up to newness of life, which, is, which is why it's really cool that they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore yeah. after they didn't, having they come didn't out. They didn't make it out. Because coming out is the is picture the, of life. That's the big thing. Anybody can go in. Who's going to come out? We move on to the uh, to the point where, after seeing all this wonderful stuff, it turns out, and I guess this happens in my life as well, where God has actually worked on your behalf so many times that you can actually retell it to people, and then you murmur, we murmur and complain, or we think that God doesn't care, which is such a ridiculous thought and statement to begin with. So, I'd just like to hear your thoughts. I'll just open it wide up about mana or mana or man, because I didn't see the ah. Uh, um, mana and quail, which I think is great, and Sabbath. So, any comments you have there, um, Jonathan? Uh, we just no, scratch, no, no, scratch, no, no, scratch, keep, keep a move. Tick two birds, one stone. Yeah. <laughs> The, this is significant, everyone knows this, but just as a review, the concept of not cooking on Shabbat and not carrying burdens and staying in your place oh, yeah. all comes from this, this narrative, which is very significant. But um, it's, it is funny that uh, I think this is also the, um, for a Yom Tov, uh, the exclusion to the rule about where you can cook what you need on that day. I think also uh, comes from here. I, I, I can find it later. Yeah, I, it's um, just point of clarification. I think a lot of uh, a lot of messianics, a lot of us, believe that on a yom tov you can cook, um, but they also think that we can light a fire. Right, which is not which is not the case. You, if you already have a fire, right. you can use it, the fire. You can cook. Right. If you didn't light the fire, right. lighting the stove halakhically would be. Uh, a faux pas, as right. they say. But most people don't think that. They're like, oh, well, it's a Yom Tov. Right. Let's make blintzes. Yeah, right. and it yeah. just doesn't. But, but you bring up a good point about the, uh, the Shabbat laws and where they, from where they come, which is important. Um, did you notice that, um, you're speaking about Shabbat law, when the guy, this is later on in the book, when the guy is gathering the sticks on Shabbat, what did we do to him? This guy died. This was a capital offense. Now, it's interesting, that's not what happened to the folks that were gathering, looking for manna, Shabbos morning, when they should have been praying Shacharit. They're out looking for manna. But there was no mention of smacking them around, hitting them with stones. Well, I think it's just the reason why. We haven't even, what's the heck is Shabbat? That hasn't even been given to us yet. Ah, well, oh, come well, on. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? Is it not true? Well, I mean, it's because remember? they didn't actually pick the manna up because there wasn't any. Huh, well, that's good. So there wasn't a burden to so, be carried. Oh. So going out of your house, it's so the intention. So you can drive. So they okay. were intending to, to sin. But, but, but even then, but again, I think if, if you don't have a strong history of the you know, chronological order, right. you wouldn't think that the, the Sabbath would be anywhere on their radar. Um, because it's not it's so you don't, given as a commandment. So do you believe that Abraham kept Shabbat? Uh, possibly, How about no? So, possibly. Well, okay. But if they possibly did, do you think they maintained it during... Definitely. Possibly, possibly. Right. 
Okay. Tradition holds that Moses instituted Shabbat when he was prince in Egypt to give the people of Israel a break during their slavery. That's so they, neat too. Tradition holds that they've been doing this for a while. Right. But what's cool about that passage, you brought that up about why they didn't judge them, God didn't judge the people who went out. And um, I thought Morgan's point was very good. But I was also thinking about how God is also like a great um, uh, demonstration of good parenting and how interesting it is how, like, when, when, like, at that moment, like, God gives this rule. Well, there, there is a violation of the rule, and God chooses at that point to be somewhat merciful to these people. He gets upset with them. He reprimands them verbally. Yes, he does. So that they recognize, ooh, I, I messed up. Um, the God doesn't ignore what they did, right. but he doesn't necessarily judge them with full, full force at that point. But when the guy breaks it again later, it's like, okay, this is the second offense. I've already spoken to you. You've already heard this is wrong. Now comes the real judgment, and it's going to be so bad, no one will ever do it again. And I think that that's just a really cool okay. um, image of the way that um, I feel like a, a, a healthy parenting style that I think my parents, I know Greg and Morgan, have been using with their kids. is like you're, you're giving your kids you know, opportunities to turn around to warn them before things get really bad. And then when it's going to get bad, it's like it's going to be a very painful spanking at the end of this. And when it's over, hopefully we'll never have to do this again because it was a very unpleasant experience. Amen. Um, and I, I think the other thing that stands out in this passage that's so cool is God's provision for his people in complete balance because it says that it, everyone gathered exactly what they needed. And um, tradition holds that God decides at Rosh Hashanah like, what income a man will receive throughout the whole rest of the year. Right. And so I think about that when I think about this passage, and I think, okay, so that means that no matter how hard I work this year, in a sense, like, my work needs to be done ultimately to God's glory, but he's going to provide. So if I feel like, oh, I don't have enough, or I'm concerned about money, or whatever it might be, I don't need to worry about that, because all of that is in God's hands. He can make money fall from the sky if he wants to. He can also choose to take money away through something breaking or there being a problem. So all of that is completely in his hands. So everyone has exactly what they need, for when they need it. So if I don't have it, I don't need it. I that was really neat. It is neat. I like it. And I like your progressive discipline, just like progressive revelation. It's good. This is bring up the bread of heaven from John 6. Yep. Just read this little yep. passage. Please, how cool please. It is. So this is, uh, this is Yeshua, and he says, okay, all right. And then they said to him, what must we do? to be doing the works of God. Yeshua answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Yeshua then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. 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 The bread of heaven. Go ahead. Well, there's a kind of related to that. There's another interesting midrash. Uh, We know from the text that um, Hashem commanded that they take an omer of manna and put it in the ark. Uh, that would be the left hand ark, the one with the <laughs> right, right. To keep it there as a memorial for all generations. And of course we know the ark has been lost as it were, right? But there's... Harrison Ford had it. 
That's right. Um, but there is a midrash that says you know, that when Messiah comes, you know, the ark the ark will be restored, right, and found or whatever. That the jar of manna that Messiah will you know will um, bring out the jar of manna as you know kind of a testimony to God's faithfulness. Wow. So think about this concept in the light of, of what Yeshua said and in the light of the miracles that Yeshua did with bread. Imagine when Yeshua comes and he takes the jar of manna that's been preserved from this from this event down through the ages. And it's over, it's only an omer of manna. But he opens it and he feeds wow. from that omer of manna all of the righteous ones, all of the kiddushin, you know, uh, that's a cool, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Yes, sir. As a future teaser for a study class yes. topic. This is a volunteer moment. The commandment, yeah. I'm not, I'm not you're, you're the volunteer, baby. You're the volunteer. I've been voluntold. But, <laughs> voluntold. Let no man leave his place on the seventh day, um, which is a, a, a Torah mitzvah, but I don't think no one's, it, there's a lack of discussion of what it means and how it's defined your place. But we do see in, I think, Acts chapter 1, verse 12 or something, where the apostles go a Sabbath day journey outside of Ju uh, the, the walls of Absolutely. Uh, Jerusalem. So it's, it's a well-defined thing. The scripture is silent on, on how it's to be carried out. So Talmud's got, what, three, right. three volumes, Aravim? Two. Two? Two. Yeah. So, uh, so that, I come in class on that. Okay. I think it's just such a cool picture that when... They took whoever took less than an omer would not be lacking at all. But then whoever took a little more, like that, that was kind of they still had as much as they would have taken had they not taken that more. Doesn't basically. that happen when your wife brings spaghetti out? She takes a little bit, you take a lot, but you're both satisfied. It's the same thing, right? Not necessarily. Really? You're not necessarily satisfied? Why? No, no, I am. But I, I think that's really cool just going along with what Mr. Uppen was saying about Yeshua, too, because like he came and humbled himself to the yes. point of death, yes. reducing himself to that state. And then that is what is, I mean, we, no one's lacking after that. Kind of pointing I towards the manna. I like that. I like that. Pointing towards the manna. Yes, ma'am. Okay, because I do use a fireplace a lot, I feel I need clarity on this. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be short I mean, discussion, really, I think. It supplements my heat. So, gathering wood being like if, if, like from tree to preparation that way, right? I think your your wood's already gathered because I, I helped do something. Yes, you did, praise God, plus some other. Well, a lot of other men, too, yeah. But my question is, okay, I've got a cord of wood there. Yes, ma'am. I'm okay carrying it from there to my fireplace, correct? You actually might want to watch or listen to the class that uh, Jonathan's going to be hearing, <laughs> speaking about the aruv and going out of your place. Carrying a burden, I'm sure, will be like a class B on that. Okay. But if you're in the Aruv, I don't think you need to. Okay. Not, it's like that right? carrying inside your house is permitted. Carrying inside your house, even inside the Aruv, is okay. So, well, what about just your okay. property? Yeah. Well, that that would be, I would say, your well, Aruv. There's a, there's a, well, there's a discussion so, on that. So, create a boundary. so you're fine doing logistically, that. Logistically, if you were to carry all the wood you need, I needed yeah. for the day. You don't need to worry about that. You're okay. It would be piled You're very okay. high. You are okay. Okay, thank you. <laughs> now, if you had to go across the street, down the block, and get your wood, 
different story. Correct. That was what I was thinking. So you and got kindling. I'd be okay having coals. Correct. As long as I had coals, if I leave my house in the morning, okay, and I'm gone hours, I bank my fire so that I do have coals when I get back. So okay. you're not going to kindle a new fire. That's the question. I'm glad we got the care of that very quickly. There's a little halakhic melody going on. I haven't done the study yet. It's not silly at all. It's a difference between being obedient and not caring at all what God said. And I haven't done the study yet, but when it comes to your personal comfort and warmth on Shabbat, it gets air on the side of that's okay. Interesting. Can I? Right, but we can't kindle a new fire. I don't know. Right. I mean, there is a debate. For the Jews in Siberia, when it's negative three degrees, are they going to kindle on Shabbat? I mean, I don't know. I mean, as long as we feel good, well, no, no, no. But I think, no, but I think to his point is like on the areas that are more like not starting a new fire. But then the question would be like how you define kindling. Some people could take a more stricter view. Okay, so I'm going to jump right in now and say here we are turning to chapter 16, and we will have a halakhic discussion about fire. As soon as we get another man to step up and teach that class, Siberia three degrees. We should have like a, we, we need to have like a month's worth of Zadi classes on Shabbat. That's Praise good. God. 16.9, Moses said to Aaron, say to the entire assembly of the children of Israel, approach the presence of Adonai, for he has heard your complaints. We're always looking for something new each year when we read the portion. This line is what caught me this week. I read this and recall thinking how cool it must be to be called near to the presence of the Almighty, the King of the Universe, the Creator of all. I mean, that's why I'm hoping that the temple is rebuilt. That's why I'm hoping that the temple sacrifices will come back into play and we can actually draw near to his presence. I'm looking forward to that, I really am. And it occurred to me this year that this line, that's Exodus 16.9, this is probably not a fun time. It occurs to me that this is probably like a father saying, I heard you, come here. <laughs> I think probably pretty scary, and it didn't occur to me in the first time. What actually happens to them, and how did they draw near? How does that work? How did they approach the presence of Adonai? Shekinah, cloud, pillar, fire, something, right? Somewhere there, and it's like, draw near? Well, where were they? I thought that was the cool part about them traveling, is that he was with them. But they're all like around them, right? In the shape of a Roman cross. No, they're all around them, camped. And now they're all told to draw near. I'm reminded of Korah's rebellion. Don't, don't stay near that guy or his tent. Bad news. There's a dotted line on the dirt. Back up beyond the dotted line. Do you think they all just kind of huddled and stood up and walked towards the fire? How does it work? I mean, can you not see it? I want to see it. I want to feel this story. What did they do? Did they all say, oh, okay. No, I said, approach. 
How did it work? Did they just send the leaders? Were there 12, 15, 20 guys? Was the camp outside? Well, it's not the tabernacle. So what is it? It's the tent of Moses. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of imagine, like, Moses says, everyone come out to meet God, and so everyone gets out of their tent, they start wandering and get ready to go. As they turn around and start going towards the tent of Moses, all of a sudden, oh. And it makes that noise. Probably. Much louder. Yeah. Much louder. Amplified. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting. It's almost like he has them called near so that he can talk to them. But he doesn't. He talks to Aaron. But they want he wants them to see him talk talking with Moses. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can work with that. Quail at night, man in the morning, bamana bread, all that kind of stuff is really good. I was kind of wondering if there was any parallels between that and like the first and second coming, since the manna relates to Yeshua. And I don't know, it seems like with the quail, like when you read later in Numbers, that it does, like, it, it really separates people because those that were craving it were basically killed by it because then the plague came. Yeah. But I, I assume that the quail was still there for, for others that weren't necessarily like, craving it. So it's, okay. it's interesting how, you know, the manna doesn't like kill some and leave others, right. but it's like the second coming, I guess you could say, where the, the real separation between the huh. two. I never thought of the righteous. The second one comes in the clouds. Hmm. That's cool. Also yeah. interesting here. I well, I just had a real quick question there. I've always read that the manna lasted 40 years or 39 and a half, yeah. whatever it was, right? Yeah. Did it quit? Did it quit it, doesn't, it doesn't appear to. It's not like it comes this one time and it stops until they, they complain about it again later. That's the appearance. But I think the, the quail, though, does stand out to me because of the fact of that story. Um, I mean, once again, you've got people, they, they ask God for food. He's very gracious and he sends quail. Then later, they complain about the food and God sends quail again. Then he's like, and then, then he zaps the guys that were starting the problem. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that um, the sages say the reason why God gets upset with the Israelites on their complaining on sometimes, but not on other times, is it all dependent on the reason for the complaint. Mm-hmm. In this case, they're complaining because they don't have anything to eat. It's a legitimate problem. The first the, time. The first time. And God recognizes that, okay, maybe you're doing it the wrong way, but your complaint is understandable. You're scared. The second time. The second time, you're complaining about what I gave you. Like, my provision that was supposed to be enough isn't enough for you. And that's not a legitimate complaint. So God is mad with them. And I think that's really a, a good point even, um, even I think, somewhat for us as well, is recognizing, like, in our approach to God, there are times we ask for things that, and we, we want or need something. And um, I think that we have, like, I think there's a healthy way to approach that and a not healthy way to approach that. Definitely never healthy is when I'm upset with what God has given me. It's not enough, God. So from a marital perspective... The fact that you got dinner is good. Right. Asking for dinner with variety may not be the best play. <laughs> got Pod roast every night. Yeah. Well, I, I think that. What would part of that be ungratefulness? Right. Well, that's where he's. Yeah. I think yeah. that's yeah. where he's coming. But but the difference between ungratefulness and 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 because um, they're discontent when they're starving. 
they're not happy about not having any food. But God is, is, is gracious with that because he recognizes this legitimate need. Sure. Where God is upset with them is when they're ungrateful for what he has already provided. And I think the same thing also plays in a little bit with, with kids, too. Like, if you see uh, you know, kids hungry and that makes them upset or so, for some reason, that's not an appropriate response, and you, you tell them that. But I think most parents are probably considerably more relaxed when their kid is upset because they're hungry than when they're just upset because they're whiny or they're bored. It's like that's not an excuse. Or they wanted corn instead of mashed potatoes. Right now it's not. Now yeah, you're going to like it. That's right. That's right. All right, we close with uh, Amalek. Amalek is supposed to be remembered or supposed to be forgotten. Remember to forget. The answer is yes. Right. We remember to forget. No. We forget. We 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 don't. We don't forget. We forget never to forget. We remember to not forget. To remember to forget this guy. What? You know, in the scripture, it's actually pretty straightforward. Yeah. What's it say? One sentence. What's it? What's it say? Do not forget to blot out his name. Oh, we don't blot out his name. God does. Like he'll for his memories. It's something like that, right? It's, so it's just basic. one line. It's so basic. Recited in the years of Joshua, this was important, that I shall surely erase the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. question is why. What did he do? I mean, you look up despicable in the dictionary, there's a picture of Amalek. What do you do? They are the first nation that goes against Israel. Everyone else sees all this stuff, or hear, at least hears about what's going on in Egypt. It's like, whoa. whoa. And these people are headed our way. Okay, well, let's see what happens. Amalek actually acts first and says, looks like they're coming towards us. We're going to go fight them. Who did he get? The weaklings. Elderly. He's grabbing onto the weaklings, the elderly people, the young kids and whatnot, at the back. We read about this later. Okay. But, but why would that require an, a complete annihilation in a war against Amalek in a regeneration? I mean, there are plenty of other nations, Philistines, Babylonians, Assyrians, other Canaanite people. We got three minutes, and he's got a three-hour shtick coming. They continually, you know, at various times, were always attacking and warring and creating trouble for Israel. So why don't we block their memory out? I think it's because you look at what Amalek does. Like the rest of the nations that are in Canaan, they all react. They say you can't enter our land, or when Israel comes into their territory, they do things. Amalek specifically is trying to supplant God's promises. They're specifically trying to uh, like damage Israel and then lead them away. They're, they're specifically targeting Israel to keep them from taking what God has given them. I think, and that, they're the first ones to do it too. Okay. It's in the six remembrances, right? In the morning. It is in the six remembrances. Yeah, this is big. The spirit of Amalek is it? You want to go? Okay. Well, um, so what's interesting here is um, in seventeen, um, in seventeen. Um, let's see what I want to start here. Uh, oh, just started verse five. Moses passed before the people. So they're complaining, right? Pass before the people and take what you some of the elders. In your hand, you should take your staff, which you, uh, with which you struck the river, and go, behold, I will stand before you in the rock, by the rock in Horeb, and struck the rock, etc., etc. Moses did in the sight of the elders. He called the place Massah on Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because of their test, right? So, Massah on Meribah, contention and testing. Um, Verse 8. Be- because they said, 
the end of verse 7, is Adonai among us or not? So, every time I read that, I'm like, are you kidding? After all this. I mean, after everything that they have experienced, you know, the manna now, the, the red, you know, the splitting of the sea, the Egyptians dead on the sea, I mean, the play, I mean, everything that they've seen in the last few weeks, and they're really asking, they're really doubting, is God even with them? And then the very next verse says, Amalek came and battled Israel. So you're right. Amalek, um, Amalek took the initiative and came out against them, you know, um, with aggression, right? But what's interesting is the sages, you know, because of the way they read the scripture, they said, no, oh, this is interesting. We're doubting whether God's with us, and what's the consequence? Amalek attacks us. So they start looking at this, and they say, huh, well, that's interesting because the the Hebrew word for doubt is safek, which has the same gematria as the name Amalek. So they equate doubt with Amalek. And when we doubt Hashem, when we doubt God, when we doubt whether he's with us or not, then we are begging for an assault by Amalek. So that is why there is a war in every generation. It's not just against a physical, actual people, although it certainly is that. But equally importantly, it's actually a battle against doubt and unbelief. And that is what we have to fight in every generation. I don't know about you, but I haven't actually fought an Amalekite. Not yet. Yes. Yeah, maybe the day will come, right? When the sun comes. I'm venturing to guess most of us in the room have not fought an actual Amalekite. Speak for yourself. But I, <laughs> but I struggle with doubt and unbelief on a daily I a basis. Yeah. It's, the spirit of <laughs> it's the spirit of Amalek. Exactly. In Amalek, doubt and unbelief does try to supplant the promises and the plans of God in our life. That is why we have a war in every generation. And that is why God said, do not forget. Please remember to wipe out doubt and unbelief in your midst. Okay, a practical. Give a practical. A debt today practical. Well, how about if you recognize that you're doubting God's provision okay. or doubting God's hand and you catch yourself and remember that you've been commanded to remember to wipe that out and to step out in faith and recognize the vision of God. Well, I'm thinking back to a, a teaching that I heard from Rabbi Daniel Lappin at one point where he's actually speaking of the blessing that Jacob is giving to his sons. And he, he gave that right here. Exactly. What's what's going on is he, he uses this, you know, there's this really cool thing where he brings in the actual Hebrew text in there instead of saying, well, the voice is the voice of uh, Jacob, but the hands are those of Esau, well, you know, he says, well, there's a, a text spelling variant in here, so you could actually say it was Jacob's voice without having to repeat the word, so what he's saying is that with this repeated word, um, instead of call for voice, you've got kale, so if you read it like hakel, kol, yakov, etc., et you, you get this point, it's like, okay, well, 
when the voice of Jacob is weakened, i.e. doubt, you know, when we're not lifting up prayers to God, then Esau will have his full strength. The a descendant of Esau, Amalek, will come at you with everything he's got. He will have his full power. Mm-hmm. And this, exactly. And this, this place, you know, Rephidim, you're not going to find it on a map because not always is a place a geographical a, a name of a location a geographical location but it can also be a spiritual condition so when you look at it in terms of breaking it up Rephidim as Rephidim weak hands you know perfect picture with Moses what we just finished exactly perfect picture here of Moses you know having you know weak hands and you know not being able to keep that staff up there so what's happening is when we weaken spiritually, the enemy wins militarily or physically. And so that's all the more reason that we as believers need to constantly be in prayer because it works. Mm-hmm. Good job, John. Well done. What's cool? Closing comment. <laughs> oh. Towards the end, what's cool about thinking about that unbelief being represented here by yeah. Amalek and that they do destroy him at the end when Moses builds the altar and then calls it, the Lord is my banner. That word for banner is like, in, just, in so many messianic references throughout scripture. Yeah, Ness. Yeah, Ness. That's the one, it's actually the pole that is raised, which Yeshua says about himself, and then it's also in Isaiah 11, about like, the in that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Right. So it's cool that that's the end result of fighting and overcoming unbelief. Well, that, that, and whole, that whole picture, the imagery there, you know, is, is totally, obviously, an allusion to Messiah, because you have Moses, who is a type of Messiah, what and what does he do? He says, "I'm gonna, I'm going up on the hill, and I'm taking my wooden staff, and I'm gonna hold up my wooden staff, right? And as long as my hands are upraised, you will prevail. But if my hands fall, right, you, you won't." And he goes up, and his hands become weak, right? And so what happens? It says that her and um, and Aaron go up on the hill with him. So now you have this image of Moses, a Messiah type, with a wooden staff with his, whole, you know, with his arms outstretched, and a man on one side and a man on the other on the hill. Three guys on the top of a hill? Three guys on the top of a hill. And it brings deliverance to the people against Amalek. That should make the hair go off too. And he's sitting on on an event, which that's an interesting word in Hebrew, because it's actually a conjugation of Av and Ben. He's sitting on a stone. Which which means father and son. Because he is the the stone. right? There's all that. We won't go into that. But but the point is that all of this imagery, and, and because it was so significant, Moses, when this whole event is done and God has delivered them against Amalek, at least for the time being, it's so significant that Moses uh, erects an altar and names the place Adonai, my miracle, or my my banner in some translations, which is a clear 
picture of the inside that would be recognized by all people. And to this very day, what's nothing more than an iconic image except Messiah on a tree with his arms outstretched on a hill, and there's two witnesses on either side of him. You can't make that, you can't make that stuff up. So, yeah. God's a genius. <laughs> it's true. Scott, what does Scott mean? Is there is there a meaning for Scott other than like a you know a genius? Genius. <laughs> Often demonstrated, never reproduced. Would you close us in prayer, my friend? Father, we're, uh, we're thankful for the opportunity to be together to talk about uh, talk, talk about the the word that you've preserved through history and generations for us to have and learn from. And we pray, Father, that uh, as we read the, uh, the stories, the historical accounts that you've left for us year after year, that we would see things uh, revealed by you to us each year that we can uh, learn from, and not just learn, but apply. We pray, Father, you bless us with peace to the rest of our staff. We pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Savior, our Messiah. Amen. 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 Thank you, folks. Good job. Thank you.